welcome to the 70th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to The Athletic. The music you're listening to is a brand new song from MC White Owl, Football for a Buck, in conjunction with my recently released book of the same name. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to novels to screenwriting to romance to comics to whatever genres I'm thinking of. And the new clean and spiffy and super jiffy episode features Gary Myers, the longtime NFL writer who covered the league as a beat writer for the Dallas Morning News, then as a columnist for the New York Daily News. And what we're chatting about is a game of football, the ultra-guarded NFL, and how a writer can navigate through the hell that is the conservative PR machine, players programmed not to talk, and social media devices that make our presences sometimes feel hmm, unnecessary. We're also going to step into Gary's new book, How About Them Cowboys, and what there remains to learn of the bashful Jerry Jones. It's all right now on Two Writers Singing Anything. All right, Gary, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I very much appreciate it. And I just want to say, so the first Gary Myers byline I can find on newspapers.com, August 25th, 1978, Jennings, a punter who relies on his mind and his foot. And your lead is, there isn't all that much for Dave Jennings to do at the daily New York Giants football workout. So he thinks. Dave Jennings is the thinking man's punter. He stands on the 40-yard line and concentrates on putting the ball inside the 10-yard line. He stands on his own 20 and figures whether he is wiser to boom the ball or hang it. It's a really good story, actually, about Dave Jennings. Not that I should be surprised. It's a really good story. And I was kind of wondering, actually, when I started this, you've been around the NFL for a long time now. and This story is 40 years old. Is covering the NFL in the sort of modern era of football drastically, drastically different than it was in 1978? Yes, but before I answer that, I just want to tell you one thing about that story. I, obviously, I don't remember that story. But <laughs> Dave Jennings, Dave Jennings was the player who was responsible for the NFL uh, when they issued the, the punter stats, have the gross average and the net average, because he was always trying to put his punts inside the ten, inside the twenty or inside the ten, and as a result, his gross punting average didn't necessarily stack up to some of the other punters who just boomed it through the end zone, but then the ball will come out to the 20. So Dave says, well, we need to subtract 20 yards from those punts because what purpose did it serve going in the end zone? So that that's how they developed the gross and the net because of Dave Jennings. And I don't know if I got into it in that story or not, but actually there's a, quote, there's, there's a quote right here in the story. Jennings says it's frustrating. They can't actually score points for the Giants, but views his job as a means to an end. Field position is the key, he said. If we get the ball at the 40 and can't move it, I'll try to give it back to them at the five. The pump may only travel 30 yards, but it's better than putting it through the end zone like Ray Guy. That's right. And, and Dave, Dave was, it's funny that I called him the thinking man's punter. I mean, how many other punters wind up doing uh, the color run? Did, he did the Jets and the Giants at one point. He went, yep. I think he started with the Jets and went to the Giants. He was doing the color on the radio broadcast and nobody knew the rules better than Dave and you know may he rest in peace but he, he was one of a kind I mean he he was a punter but he he really considered himself a football player actually you know what's interesting in this story is he he's kind of bashing Ray Guy um he's like there Jennings used to open guy <laughs> who Ray Guy is a hall of famer I think as an example of a punter not proficient at knocking the ball out of bounds he put five punts in two playoff games with the end zone Jennings said I did it four times in uh 14 games he's just a boomer it's like a golfer who drives 350 yards, but four putts. To me, John James of Atlanta is the best punter in the league. 
That's like trash talking when punters didn't trash talk. <laughs> oh boy, that's great! I'm gonna have to go find that story. That that sounded uh, uh, yeah. Dave was ahead of his time. But as, as far as what your question was, is covering the league different now? It's drastically different because the access is so much worse. Uh, when, when I worked in Dallas all those years, and when the Cowboys moved to Valley Ranch, we had free reign of the building. Uh, they gave us our own key codes, and we can walk back to the coaches' offices. At lunchtime, and I often did that and sat with the sat with, like, say, Paul Hackett, the offensive coordinator, and watched tape. And he would teach me a lot about football. And now you have the forty-five minutes in the locker room. If you're lucky, a player that the readers have heard of will show up for the last five minutes. So you can talk to him. Uh, players are making so much money now; they don't need the media anymore to help them with their image, so they can get endorsements. Uh, the endorsements is just like diaper money for them. Um, right. where in the past, you know, they wanted to have a good image and they, they relied on the media to present that. So that the local car dealership will, you know, would offer them $30,000 to endorse, uh, their dealership, but they don't care about that stuff anymore and they don't feel that they need us. Plus with social media, they just get the message out themselves. Well, when did that change? Was there a moment? Was there a tipping point for access in the NFL? <sighs> um, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the NFL having its own network and having its own website, and they cater to them, and they cater to the network partners that pay a gazillion dollars um, to broadcast the games. And I just, I truly believe that the NFL teams would be just as happy if there was no daily coverage except for their own website and then NFL Network. They just don't feel that they need the media anymore. They don't need the media to help them sell tickets by publicizing their team. Uh, and, and as far as when it changed, I, I think I noticed um, probably around 2000 or so, um, as the, the player contracts skyrocketed, that they needed the media less and less than they had. And, and that, and probably like the initial part of that was probably when free agency came about in 93, 94. And, and all of a sudden the football players were making, you know, two and three times what they had been making. And, um, and again, you know, they'd spend most of the time in the training room and you were lucky to see anybody that the readers cared about, uh, during a 45 minute period. It, it's a much more difficult league to cover now than it ever has been. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I have a friend uh, named Mirren Fader, and she writes for Bleach Report. And she wrote a really, really, really good profile of Sean McVay, the, the Rams coach, last year. And I think she got literally, not exaggerating, five minutes with Sean McVay. And she wrote a great story. And I was thinking, at this point in my career, you know, being in my 40s and having done this for 20 years, I think if the Rams had told me they're giving me five minutes of Sean McVay, I would have said, yeah, I'm not doing this story. Like, I'll find mm -hmm. someone. I'll find another coach to write about. And mm -hmm. I always thought, I, in my head, I would imagine the Rams saying, whoa, 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 we can make it work. But in a way, you're saying they'd probably be like, all right, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Yeah, yeah. And, and the funny part about it, Jeff, is that Sean McVay is one of the real good guys in the league. And yeah. sometimes I wonder – if they say to Sean, how much time do you have for, for Jeff Perlman or the PR guy just decides that Sean McVay only has five minutes for Jeff Perlman? Um, a lot of times 
the reason I always, when they offer me stuff like that and I do it, is I feel that once I get in the room with the coach, yeah, unless he has to go to a meeting, that I can always extend it. And, you know, that my questions will be good enough and I can be disarming enough that he'll say, okay, you know, let's just keep it going. But, you know, if you just turn it down, then you have no shot. So I, I never turn it down. It, you know, it doesn't make me happy and to have those kind of restrictions, but um, it, it's really just the way that it is now. It's the, the, the access is absolutely the worst part of covering the NFL. When you think about baseball and I've never covered it and I know you have, um, you know, the clubhouses being open for hours before the game. And I mean, I don't know if the players hide out during that period of time, but at some point they're going to walk to the, to their locker and then you stand out and watch batting practice or whatnot. And you get the players again after the game, you get the manager before the game, you get the manager after the game. Um, in, in the NFL, you know, like Eli Manning, who is as cooperative a player as I've ever dealt with, he'll talk Monday after losses because he wants to be the face of the franchise. Um, and then he'll talk on Wednesday and he's friendly enough that you can really walk up to him any day and he'll talk. But there are rookies in this league that the team set these restrictions on. Um, he only talks on Wednesday. Sam Darnold of the Jets, a rookie. He's a good guy. He's dealt with the media in LA. So it, it's not like he's being blindsided by a, a large group of writers, but he only talks on Wednesdays and after games. Right. It's, it's preposterous that a quarterback can't find 10 minutes a day during the 45 minute open locker room period to talk, to talk to the media. And, you know, I've been out there and they said, well, Odell Beckham's day is to talk tomorrow. I said, but I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Today's my day to talk. You know? <laughs> yeah. That, does, that doesn't often work, though. Yeah. Sorry, Gary. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we can get you uh, the, the fifth wide receiver, maybe. 10 yeah, minutes. that's right. That's right. Um, and it seems like the problem with this is um, it sets something up. Like Sam Darnold comes into the NFL. I did a story on him for Bleach Report last year. He is a really nice guy, like a very yeah. nice guy. Yeah. and and agreeable, and he was great, and how much time do you need? And I feel like, you may disagree, what this does is it changes what should be a good dynamic, and it changes expectations. And soon enough, Sam Darnold is saying, yeah, I only talk on Wednesdays, and and doesn't see the problem in that. No, I agree with that. They, they insulate these guys so much. And I thought I always thought the Jets, from day one, did a disservice to Mark Sanchez, because they pretty much built a wall around him and he would do his Wednesday um, little press conference by his locker. He started off, they brought him into the press room and then now let's just do it by his locker. And then when he'd stood, stood there for 10 minutes, they had one of the PR people say, okay, last question when Mark wasn't looking to get out of there. And then they say last question and most of the media would scatter and a couple of us would just hang out and, and try to just kibitz with him a little bit. And, the PR got no sessions over, and they never gave Mark a chance to really get to know any of the writers. So when he starts playing bad, and you know as well as I do that, you know your personal feelings should never get in the way of what you write. Um, whether a player is cooperative or not should never work its way into your story. But when Mark started having problems, there was really no writer he can go up to and say, "Hey, listen, this is what's really happening," right. or. You know, I'm being unfairly criticized. Can you help me out here? Because the Jets did not let him develop any relationships with the writers. And the funny part was he winds up in Philadelphia after the Jets let him go. 
And I go down to do a story with him, and I'm sitting on a bench with him. And we're talking for a long time. And I go, where, where, where were you the last four or five years? I said, this is fun. I mean, you're, you're very insightful. You're talkative, you're friendly. And, you know, just kind of shrugged his shoulders. And I, I really think that the, the teams protect the players now to such an extent that it's detrimental. Yeah. You actually, it's interesting. You're, uh, you, you wrote a, a tweet. I, I always feel like such a goober every time I even cite you, tweet. But um, <laughs> it's like preposterous. I am leaving the New York Daily News after 29 years. I've enjoyed covering the run from Parcells to the butt fumble to present day. And I'm so appreciative of all who have read my work, whether you agreed or disagreed with my opinion. Thank you to all who supported me through the years. And one of the responses you got very quickly was Darrell Rivas. And he wrote, mm -hmm. great speaking with you over the years, triple exclamation mark. And then you said, hope you're doing well, Darrell. You're always my favorite guy to talk to in the Jets locker room. Why was that? I found that very interesting. Why Darrell Rivas? I just felt that um, he was such a smart player and very aware of his surroundings. And he was not a trash talker, but he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. And he brought back such uh, memories for me of Everson Walls, who was my favorite guy in Dallas. And, and I wrote about this a little bit in my, in my cowboy book. Mm -hmm. Who's the best source I ever had? And they played the same position, corner. Didn't they wear the same uniform number? Yeah, no, both number 24. That's yeah. right. You know, Everson can get beat for 25 yards in the next play. Uh, picked the quarterback off because he never let it bother him. And, and Revis, I felt was the same way. Uh, Revis was a better player than Walls. You know, both when they were in the primes, Revis was better, but Walls was very good and he was a finalist for the Hall of Fame this past year. And I think Darrell would get in on the first ballot, but there was just something about them that, you know, when I was young and I was covering the Cowboys in Dallas, there was an Everson Walls for me. And when I was older and in New York, there was a Revis. And they get, he just reminded me so much of Everson. And I just always really enjoyed talking to him. But he did not have the best relationship with the majority of the media because he can be abrupt and surly. But um, I just think that he respected me and he knew that he can trust me. And he was always very friendly to me. And we had some great talks. So I, I was pleasantly surprised when I saw him tweet that to me. And he might have been the only player, maybe Carl Banks or somebody like that. Uh, from the Giants, but um, it was really nice of him to do that. And um, and I tweeted to him when he announced his retire his retirement that you know to wish him luck and things like that. Yeah, I have an increasing number of young journalists who say, "Man, I listen to your podcast; it's very educational." Blah 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 blah. If you were advising young sort of football writers how to navigate a locker room especially now when it's harder and harder to do, as you said, how to develop a go-to guy or mm -hmm. two. What are some of the keys that pop in your head? The backup quarterback is always the guy who knows the most and nobody ever talks to him. A funny story I can tell you is so Pat Leonard, who covers the Giants for the Daily News, he's been on his beat. This is the third year. And um, I – when I was writing columns for the Daily News, I'd be out at the Giants a lot, and I tried to mentor Pat. You know, he's considerably younger than me, but he's very talented, and he would—he always was asking for advice. And one of the first things I told him was, "Backup quarterback, get to know the backup quarterback, because he knows everything that's going on in the quarterback room. Uh, quarterbacks are usually the smartest guys in the team, and a fountain of information." 
So he developed the heck out of Davis Webb as a source last year, just to have ongoing conversations with him and, and was really developing a good writer quarterback relationship. And then Davis Webb before, right after training camp this year, it's, it's, it's only his second year in the league. The Giants cut him. And Pat goes, oh, all that time I put into him. <laughs> and he winds up on the practice squad of the Jets. But, um, yeah, I just always felt those got those guys, um, had the most information. Offensive linemen are sneaky good when it comes to doing your, doing your work in the locker room. Um, I always felt that there were one, one or two of them on every offensive line that you can really count on. Chris Snee with the Giants was one of my favorite guys. Just so coincidentally, he was, you know, Tom Coughlin's yeah. son-in-law. So there was a lot of interesting stuff to write about that relationship over the years. Um, always the most outspoken position groups on the team, the wide receivers and the DBs, because those are the positions where they're the biggest egos, where if, and if, if, if football is an individual sport at all, it's really with those positions. So, um, you know, you have the diva wide receivers and you have the diva corners and you hope a diva wide receiver is playing against a diva corner so they can trash talk each other in the days leading up to the game. Right. When you see, when you see someone like Jalen Ramsey of the Jacksonville, you know, he recently went on that sort of yeah. bash everybody rant. I think it was GQ or Esquire. I think it was GQ. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like as a, as a writer, but as someone who's been around the game, are you like, that's fantastic. I love that. Or are you like, uh, Young idiot, shut up. Well, it depends, and it depends on one thing. You know what that is? If you're right. If he does it. his trash. Exactly. <laughs> if he's trash talking to me, I'm going, that's gold, man. You know, that's what I want. If, if he's out in Jacksonville telling it to a, a GQ magazine, I'm going, what is he running his mouth for? What has he accomplished that he puts him in position to, to do that? So, right. And that's really the truth. You know, if they're saying it to me, we can't, we can't be hypocritical and say, you know, players just don't say anything anymore and they don't give us access. And then on the other hand, if a guy runs his mouth saying he's a big mouth, what's he doing? He, he can't have right. it both ways. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's funny. I just think, I always think when I hear stuff like that, you know, one of my favorite quotes is uh, youth is wasted on the young. And whenever yeah. I hear a young guy like that talking shit, I always think Darrell Revis was a better player than you are. And he can't play anymore. And everyone reaches that point at some point, and you're going to get there too. Well, I mean, they take the the platform that they have when they're at the top of their game, and you know, depending on the personality of the player, you know, they either use that form they have to be pretty outspoken, or they just go about their business. Um, so many players now are, seem like they're programmed that when you can get a guy in the locker room that you know if you stand around him for 10 minutes or preferably even have him by yourself, that mm -hmm. he'll say something that can create a headline. That, that's what everybody's looking for. And that's where like journalism has really changed. Is Listen, I'll admit, I was always looking, you know, I worked for tabloid for nearly 30 years. So I was always looking, you know, for back pages. But one, I, I would never force it. And two, I would never, ever make it up. And I, I just think all the standards have gone out the window now. With, with social media and everybody's story, you know, everybody's deadline is now five minutes ago. You can't sit and really think about a story. You can't develop stories because the newspapers where you used to have a 7 p.m. deadline, now your deadline is constant. It's like working for a wire service. 
And there's so much pressure on these writers now to, to get clicks that stories become notes and notes become stories now. And I I mean, I don't like it. I'm glad I've transitioned um, to book writing almost entirely in my writing. Now I I write once a week for the athletic and that's plenty and I'm doing some radio, but I I would, I'll put it this way, Jeff. I wouldn't want to be starting out now covering an NFL team with the requirements that are on the writers. Now you got to write two, three stories a day. You can't send them at seven o'clock. You got to sit down and write it as soon as you have any information, but you also have to tweet. And by the way, because we can't afford photographers on the paper anymore, you're now a photographer. And, um, and while you're at it, if there's a blog, you can write, that would be good too. There's the workload is just so much different that I just think the quality of the work has suffered because a writer who just usually just had to worry about getting his stories for the paper the next day now is like a, a one man production crew with stories for the, for the web. You have to tweet, you have to blog and you have to take pictures. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who thinks these ads for 503 sports, Kings of the throwback sports merchandise are boring and stupid and unnecessary. Do you have something better to share with people? I do. Really? Yes. And now I'm going to play Part of Your World on the recorder. And you think that'll be more interesting than reminding listeners that 503 Sports sells throwback gear from the World Football League, the Canadian Football League, the XFL, minor league baseball, and hockey? I guarantee it. Nothing is more beautiful than recorder interpretations of Disney classics. Even the fact that all 503 Sports goods are handcrafted, beautifully made, and reasonably priced? Dad, the haunting sound of the recorder is a gateway into one's soul. Okay, go ahead. That was lovely. I told you so. If you stir up funks in the ears, visit 503-sports.com, type in coupon code YANG18 for 10% off your next purchase. You covered, and you have a book on it, actually, you covered the catch on January 10th, 1982. Mm-hmm. You were writing for the Dallas Morning News, uh, Cowboys 49ers, and you covered the butt fumble, correct? The Mark Sanchez butt fumble. Right, game. right. I was there for that, yeah. Here's my question. When these moments happen, do you know at the moment that they are going to go down? Like, did you know, obviously the catch was a big catch and it was Dwight Clark over Everson Walls and it was mm-hmm. the Cowboys and the 49ers blooming. You know, did you know that was going to be the catch? And did you know when you see Mark say, when you see the replay and it's holy shit, he just fumbled after running into a guy's butt, a teammate's <laughs> butt. Do you know that these moments are going to be sort of indelible, timeless moments at the time? Or is there no way to know? Well, when Dwight made that catch, there was still 51 seconds to go in the game, and the Cowboys were down by one. And what has gotten totally lost in that terrific catch was the fact that the Cowboys were driving for the winning field goal, and Danny White fumbled it midfield and two blades before that. Uh, Drew Pearson was on his way to a 75-yard touchdown, and, and Eric Wright grabs the back of his jersey and pulls him down, otherwise he's gone. So at the moment Dwight made that catch, I'm thinking, okay, it may have won the game, but this game's not over yet. So it was after the game, obviously, that um, the significance of that catch, you know, it, it came into focus because, you know, over the years it was, it was a jumping off point for the, the 49ers dynasty, and it was really the beginning of the end of the Landry era. 
But the angle that we, f- we focused on in Dallas, what I remember the next day to a large degree was the fact that the Cowboys had a chance after the catch to come right. down and win the game. And there were a couple of plays there, you know, the, the Pearson play that I mentioned and then Danny White fumbling that prevented them from attempting the winning field goal, in which case, I mean, the catch would have been a great catch, but it would have faded into oblivion because it wouldn't have won the game. It would have been a exact, catch. He had a good catch. Right. That was a great catch. Right. It was a great catch. And the Cowboys to this day still think that Joe was trying to throw the ball into the third deck, and right. Joe completely denies it. As far as the butt fumble, it took like a, a couple of replays for it to really sink in. You know, because when you're watching it live, you know, Mark slipped and he fell forward and Brandon Moore was was the right guard and his helmet went into his butt and he fumbled. But it was it was hard to tell with the naked eye um, that that's what happened. And then when you watch the replay, you go, oh, my God. And I, I can't remember who gave it the name butt fumble, but it, it's, you know, it's right there with the immaculate reception and, and anything else you want to come up with is one of the great names uh, for a play. It's unfortunate for Mark because – I, I, he just never recovered from that. The, there wasn't a story that was written for the rest of his Jets time there that did not include butt fumble. And, um, so funny. yeah, I think right away we knew that was going to be a play that the Jets would be ridiculed for f- until the end of time, maybe until they win another Super Bowl. And this is, this is the 50 year anniversary. It, it's been so long that since the Jets won a Super Bowl that Jeff, you weren't even born. Nope. And probably most Jet fans, you know, weren't born. And they're just hoping that sometime in their lifetime that, that there'll be another one. Who's the least likable coach you ever covered? Belichick. And um, I, I say that with um, the full disclosure that I have a horrible relationship with him. I'm not exactly sure that how that happened. It might have been that I was so critical of him during the Spygate stuff that uh, he's never been able to look past that. But I just think he's got a complete disrespect for my business. And I, I resent that. I really do. And the average reader doesn't care about that. But I'm trying to do my job. I have a respectable job. I'm a respectable person. And when he sits there in press conferences and mumbles intentionally so you can't hear him um, and just makes our life difficult for no apparent reason, um, he's at the top of the list and there is not a close second. Wait, so how does that how does that manifest itself? What I mean is, how do you actually know? I mean, obviously, you know. How do you know? Like, how do you have a bad relationship with him? Like, what does that mean? Do you go up and try to talk to him and he's a jerk to you? Like, how does that How does that show itself in your life? Yeah. Um, you know, league meetings, if I – I don't even try anymore. But um, if I'd go up to him and say, hey, Bill, you got a minute? No, nah, I, I, can't, I can't do that. You know, he um, asked questions in press conferences. He kind of blow, you know, gives me a, a canned answer. I mean, he does that with a lot of people, but, um, and then I've just, I just know from other people how he feels and it, it's okay. Cause I, I feel the same way about him. And just cause he's a football coach doesn't make his feelings any more important than mine. And, uh, I, I just don't feel that he has treated people in my business with respect and that he has treated me with, with respect and, you know, it's it's hard. I, I don't take away from his accomplishments whatsoever, but uh, it's it's hard to sometimes to get past that he 
can be a complete jerk. And he doesn't right. have to be because I've seen the other side of him with other people. It's just that he does it. He does it intentionally. In your career, have you ever? Um, I talked to uh, Leslie Visser a few weeks ago, and we were talking about that you weren't there, but the magnificent day of September 9th, nineteen seventy nine, when Will McDonough punched Raymond Claiborne of the New England Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen a uh, athlete writer come or a reporter come close to blows in your time covering uh, the NFL? Well, there was a story that resurfaced recently with the unfortunate passing of Ernie Palladino, who covered the uh, the Giants for a number of years, that the Giants had Lawrence Taylor out to a practice. I don't remember what year this was, but you know, sometime in the, in the first 10 years or so after he retired, and the Giant writers wanted to talk to LT, and um, LT was blowing him off, and Ernie said something to him that he probably shouldn't have said. I can't remember exactly what it was. And LT approached him, and LT was about three times the size of, of Ernie. And one of the writers, I think it was Vinnie Detrani from the Bergen Record, who had a good relationship with Taylor, just kind of got in between him and said, I, I think we need to calm down here a little bit. Um, uh, the only altercation I've ever got into that became physical was mm-hmm. because I was being a wise-ass. And this, I'll tell you the story. It, it was like 1985, I believe. It was Gary Hogenboom, who was the backup quarterback for the Cowboys. Oh, yeah. 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 So the year before, I had done a poll of the Cowboy players, which is probably one of the most impactful stories I ever wrote. The Cowboy players had just had it with Danny White. He lost three straight championship games. He, they, they perceived him as a management guy during the 82 strike. So um, in the off season in 84, I did a poll of the players, and I got about 38 players to respond that go out to the Cowboys facility when they were working out in the off-season program, and I go, um, you know, who do you think the quarterback is going to be? Who do you think Landry will pick? And who would you want the quarterback to be? So the responses were overwhelming that they thought Landry would stick with Danny, but it was overwhelming that the players wanted Hogaboom. So Hogaboom winds up starting at the beginning of the 84 season, and Landry actually cites that he became aware of how the players felt in the locker room and felt it was best you know, to give Danny, to sit Danny on the bench because he didn't feel he could lead them anymore. So I had a good relationship with Gary as a result of that. Not that I was trying to get favors from him by any means. I just thought it was a good story to do. So fast forward to the next year, he's lost, he lost his job in 84 because he was terrible. And not that White was much better, but Landry went back to White. And then about five games into the 85 season, Hoglum had not taken a snap, and he was getting cranky. And at Valley Ranch, the Cowboys' old facility, they had a lunchroom in the back. And I had an appointment, an interview set up with, with Dorsett. So Tony says, I'm going back there to eat lunch. Come back in 15 minutes and get me. So I said, okay, fine. So I walked back there, and the media wasn't really supposed to be in there. But Greg Aiello, the PR guy, and Vern Lundquist from CBS was sitting having lunch there. So I start to walk over to their table, waiting for Dorsett to get done. And Hogaboom looks up at me. And remember, this was a guy who really liked me. Uh, but again, he was – just always pissed off at this point. He looks up there and he goes, players only in this room. And me, being a wise ass from New York, said, oh, so what are you doing in here? Oh, wow. Not good, right, Jeff? Not good. Kind of awesome. Now, Gary was like 6'4", about 220. And <laughs> he gets out of his chair. And I really thought he was kidding around. Because up to that point, we really did have a pretty good relationship. 
Uh-huh. And of course, all the play, I, you know, it was a whole bunch of players that he was eating lunch with. And they're going, Oh man, Hoagie, look what Myers said. You're going to take that, Hoagie. So he walks over and he, he just puts one hand on each of my shoulders and shoves me. And, um, he was a pretty strong guy. I was just happy I didn't tip over. I mean, I stumbled back a little bit and I just said to him in a real tough guy thing, um, I think you're going to regret doing that, Gary. And we wound up talking on the phone that night. And neither one of us would apologize. And our relationship was pretty much shot at that point. <laughs> but if you I saw did, Gary you know, Hogeboom now, if you saw him now, would you joke about fine. it with him? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would, it would be fine. The only player from that era who still won't, and I got along with most of the guys there, but Danny White and I always had a bad relationship because I thought he was tremendously overrated and I thought he was kind of a phony. And so I didn't buy into him where all the other Dallas writers did. And when I was doing the book on the catch, I actually got him on the phone. I dug up his phone number and he was shocked when I was on the other end of the phone. I hadn't spoken to him in probably 20 years. And he told me that he made up his mind a long time ago. He would never be involved in anything that I was involved in. So he uh, he would not talk to me for the book. And I said, Danny, I really think it would be in your best interest, you know, because guys, I'm quoting guys talking about you in the book, and it'll be really good for you to be able to have your voice in there. And he goes, nope. And he hung up the phone. So. Wow. Interesting. But uh, if I saw Hogaboom now, we would, we would laugh about that. We would. Do you have a, you, you must, I, I got to think as a New Yorker and as a guy who's been a journalist for a long time, you have preposterously thick skin. Like Danny White hangs up on you. You're not particularly oh, I don't wounded care. by that experience. Oh, I don't care. Just don't care. No, I don't, no. How do you get that? Like, how do you get to the point where you – because I'm not totally there. I'm closer than I was 20 years ago. Yeah. I'm not 100%. How do you get to that point where you're just like, I don't give a shit. You, I don't talk to the next guy. Who cares? Yeah, because I think especially when you cover a team on a day-to-day basis or when I moved back to New York and I was writing columns, if I was writing a critical column, I'd always show up the next day. You don't want to be a hit-and-run guy. And – so I just felt like I did, I had it, you know, um, that, that if you, if you, if you had thick, thin skin, it was going to be very tough to survive because if you're writing columns, you're going to be critical. And then if somebody gets on you for being critical about them and you back down or you take it personally, um, it's very hard to survive, especially in New York. Um, I had a situation once it, the, 2006, I was all over Coughlin. He had completely lost the team, and the owners knew that, and they nearly fired him after the 07 season, but he promised to change. So the Giants lose at the end of the 06 season, and I write a column, they got to fire Coughlin. And I know he meets with the owners the next day. I had his home number, which I had never used, and I had a fairly good relationship with him. We both went to Syracuse. We used to talk about it all the time. But I just never let that stuff get in the way of what I feel felt I had a right. And so I called him at night about seven o'clock and I said, Tom, you know, it's Gary Myers. I know you met with the owners today. Can you give me an idea of what was discussed? You know, is, is it situation settled? He goes, I know what you've been writing. You're trying to take food off my table. I said, excuse me. He goes, you're saying they should let me go with you. You know, I have a wife. I have kids. You're trying to take food off my table. I said, Tom, I, I really don't look at it like that. But if that's the way you perceive it, I'm probably not going to be able to change your mind. But in the meantime, can you tell me what happened at that meeting today? 
Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And he just, he said, you really think I'm going to tell you of all people? I said, well, I thought it was worth a shot. And he said, there's not a chance. And I just hung up the phone and, and, and here's why I did it, Jeff. I, I, I was pretty sure he wasn't going to tell me, but if somebody else called him and he told them and I didn't at least try, then I would have been kicking myself. At least, and I, nobody got him else got him that night. But if the New York Post got him and Tom's told them what happened and I called him and he wouldn't tell me, at least I know I gave it my best shot and I couldn't force him to tell me. And I right. did try to get it from other people. Um, and if the price I was going to pay was he was going to leak it to somebody else because I was fair and honest in what I was writing about him, then I was, I was willing to take that risk and pay that price. Do you ever feel guilty? Like he's, he does read it that way. He's reading your column. You're calling for his mm. job. He works. I mean, part of the reason you do work is to make money and eat and, you know, take care of mm -hmm. your family. Can you understand in the moment why he feels that way? Or are you just so sort of dug in, entrenched in your viewpoint and perspective? No, of course I, f I know how he feels. You know, when a guy's making $3 million a year, I don't really think I'm taking food off his table, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> caviar. You're taking caviar off. <laughs> yeah. That, that's Serving right. tray. Uh, um, I think as I got older, I became a little more sensitive and compassionate that after I write a column, I, I would actually think about what the reaction is going to be of the person I'm writing about. And maybe I would soften something here or there, but for the most part, you know, my theme would still be the same. Because you do look at these guys as, okay, they're husbands, they're fathers, um, you know, if, if you're writing that a, a head coach should be fired, that means 15, 15 of his assistants will likely be fired also. They have kids in school whose life will be uprooted. So you, you do think about that. But if you're being fair to yourself and honest to your readers, and if you have a lot of integrity and you, you don't have an agenda and you're just writing what you feel, which is what, you know, you get paid to do, then I wouldn't, I would never really feel guilty about it. I mean, they chose this profession. I'm paid to comment on their job performance. So if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I'll be taking food off my table because I'll get fired. So yeah. I always looked at it like I had to do my job and, and that was the most important thing. But of course, you know, you, 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 you do develop relationships with people and, and it, it does, it does bother me if I, especially I was writing about somebody that I really liked. But I just never really let that get in the way. You, you just can't. I want to say about one more story here. You, uh, this is probably the best thing I've, I've read of yours. Caught my eye and I kind of remember it. No, uh, November 30th, 1992. You wrote it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's called, uh, Sad Eye See Reality. And it was, um, the game when Dennis Bird, a defensive lineman for the Jets was paralyzed. Yeah. And yeah. your lead was the Jets players were crowded around Dennis Bird, who said he had no feeling in his legs and there were plenty of red eyes on the field. Mario Johnson, a rookie defensive tackle, stood over Bird and told him he loved him. He asked me to grab his hand, Johnson said. I kissed him on his hand. I've never been moved by something like this in my life. I'll be praying hard for Dennis. I knew as soon as Dennis went down, there was something wrong. It hurts me to my heart. It was one of those devastating moments in sports. Giant Stadium was quiet as Bird lay motionless yesterday. It was early in their third quarter when he came around the left side and Scott Mercero came around the right. And when Dave Craig stepped up in the pocket, Bird ran full uh, steam into Mercero, his helmet slamming into Mercero's upper chest. Bird fell backwards, his head bouncing off the turf. He didn't move. Um, that seems like those sort of incidences and circumstances um, seem like they're incredibly hard to write about. No? Yes? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I was listening to you read some of my own words there and it just, it brought me back in time. And, um, Dennis, who, and was really tragically, um, I mean, how, how unfair is life sometimes? He died in a car accident a couple of years ago when a teenager was driving the wrong way in a highway and slammed, you know, it was a head on collision. And this is a guy who overcame being unable to walk to being able to walk again. And to die like that, it's, it's just, it just rips your heart out. But, you know, going back to that day, he had his oldest daughter was two at the time. And my oldest daughter at that point was also two. And they, the kids, the girls were just weeks apart. Dennis, who was about as real a person as I've ever met, we used to just sit in the locker room and talk about our kids. Mm-hmm. And this was the Sunday, I believe, after Thanksgiving. And all I thought about watching that was, oh, my God, that poor little girl. You know, what's going to happen to her father? I wasn't thinking, oh, my God, the Jets just lost, lost their defensive end. You know, right. I didn't give a crap about that. Um, I just really cared about Dennis because he was such a good person. And, um, yeah, I mean, he – it was it – was, it was, I still get – thinking back to that day, I still get emotional thinking about it because I, I'd never covered anything like that in my life. And, and the, the feeling that was in the locker room and, and you know, Dennis being taken into, into the city, to the hospital, and then us covering it the next few days. I mean, th- this, this team was in shock. And all the writers loved Dennis because he was just such a good guy. That that was a really hard story to cover. I'll, I'll tell you a, a story about Dennis that really tells you what kind of guy he is. I'm trying to remember. I think it was 1999 when Leon Hess passed away. And Leon was great to Dennis. When he was in the hospital, he'd go to his hospital bed every night. Every night, he'd go sit with him for a while. And wow. so they developed a very close relationship until Dennis was able to move back to Oklahoma. So Dennis came in for Leon's funeral and it was at the Park Avenue Synagogue in Manhattan. And I decided I wanted to write my column about Dennis talking about Leon because of the relationship that they had developed and they had stayed in touch all over the over the years. So there were a few of us standing by him and I have the world's worst handwriting. So I always use a tape recorder. It's it's a much better way to be accurate. And then I don't have to battle myself trying to read my handwriting and I can just concentrate on interviewing the guy. So Dennis stands there and talks for about 15 minutes. And it was so heartfelt and, and, and so gut wrenching to listen to him. Then I'm going, Oh my God, this, I'm, if I, if I don't screw this up, this is going to be a great column. So, you know, Jeff, I don't know when you were doing the day to day stuff, you always walk away from an interview. You, you rewind your tape about five seconds mm-hmm. to make sure you caught everything. Yeah. I had nothing. <laughs> Nothing. I, I, to this day, I still don't know what happened. So oh Dennis God. looks at, I, I, it was, I was distraught. That's and a nightmare. That's an absolute Dennis nightmare. Looks, it happens to everyone looks, at least once in their career, but it sucks. I know. I know. So, you know, when I do my books now for the really important interviews, I use two tape recorders. But, um, so Dennis looks over and he goes, Hey, what's, what's the matter? I said, Dennis, you're not going to believe this, but my tape recorder, I, I don't know if I hit the wrong button. I, I don't know what happened. It just didn't record. He goes, that's all right. Come over here with me. I go, what's up? He goes, ask me those questions again. Wow. 
And wow. we basically, you know, I was basically asking all the questions the first time. So, and he, you know what? He was just as good the second time as he was the first time. And, um, when you, when you think about what this business has become and, if that ever happened today, I'd like to think there's a handful of guys that would have had the same reaction as Dennis and say, let's do it over again. But I'm not sure there would be. And I mean, I was, I was sick when I, when he died. I, I really yeah. was. Uh, it just, it, that took a lot out of me that night. I remember yeah. I was out to dinner with my wife and my office called me and I, I, I just said, we got to pay the bill. I got to go home and write something. You have a book coming out the day of this podcast release. Actually, how about them Cowboys? Inside the huddle with stars and legends of America's team. And I actually thought, this is not a criticism, that the title was a little bit misleading only in that. And I actually was kind of happy about this. I feel like the book is sort of hyper-focused in a good way on Jerry Jones um, because he's mm-hmm. a truly fascinating and, you know, very unique, obviously, presence in the NFL. And I originally, when I opened, I thought, oh, this is going to be kind of like whatever, a hodgepodge of different cowboy things. and. It really, the, the star of the book is Jones. Why did you want to write that? I mean, he's been written about a million times. Like, that seems like the catch of it all. Like, why did you want to write this? And wh- how did you think I can make this different than other things written about the Cowboys? Yeah, well, first thing I want to address is the title of the book. And you'll get a kick out of this. My editor at Hachette, Sean Desmond, who is just a tremendous editor, um, mm. grew up in Dallas. So he's al- he's always been very receptive to Cowboy ideas. And he came up with this title. And I said, Sean, this title is really more identifiable with Jimmy Johnson yelling that in the locker room in San Francisco. He goes, no, no, no. At this point, it kind of transcends this that everybody's always yelling, how about them cowboys? It's catchy. And um, he goes, if you can come up with something better, you know, let me know. So I, I threw a couple things at him. And then my wife read the book. And she says to me, I have an idea for the title. I go, what do you got? She goes, she goes, Jerry does Dallas. <laughs> Ooh, that's actually really good. I, so I said to Sean, I said, my wife has a great idea. Jerry does Dallas. He goes, I think that's hysterical, but people are just going to identify it with Debbie does Dallas and they're going to think you're the wrong thing about what this book is about. I said, so what? He goes, yeah, but if it's on the shelves, people really won't know what it is. And, you know, just by seeing the title. So he, he talked me into how about them Cowboys? Um, it's, it's fine. You know, I think it, it is catchy, you know, because people are always going, how about them Cowboys? You know, but the reason I wanted to write the book is I felt like the book I did on the catch that you mentioned earlier was it was kind of a 50 50 split on the two franchises and what that game meant to each franchise and how that game affected their lives. So. There, there wasn't a lot of material in there that I felt would overlap with this book. And, and quite frankly, I always wanted to do a book just on the Cowboys. And uh, there were so many books written in the 90s when they started getting good. And then your book was terrific. Um, and so I let it like 10 years pass because your book came out, what, in 2008 or something like that? I can't remember. Yeah, right um, then. Yeah. So I felt like I let 10 years pass, another 10 years without a Super Bowl. But the franchise just growing in leaps and bounds in terms of how much it was valued at, that it's up to $5 billion now, and they have made the Super Bowl in over 20 years. So I was kind of fascinated by that, uh, you know, how their brand just continues to grow, how they've used the stadium and the star 
to further their brand. And then there's just so many, there were so many things that interested me uh, about them that I wanted to get into. I wanted to get more into the, what happened with Jimmy and Jerry and, and, and why he would then turn to a guy like Parcells, who, you know, is a, uh, a dictator like, uh, like Jimmy was and, and how desperate Jerry was to get the funding on his new stadium and turn the franchise around after five, three, five and 11 seasons with Dave Campo that he was willing to, you know, to sell a soul to the devil like damn Yankees and say, I'll bring in Parcells because I know he can win and that will help me get the $325 million bond passed in Arlington. And so I, I really get into their relationship and, and the ups and downs of it. And I, I got into a thing with, um, the friendship of Romo and Witten. And the first chapter is about the fireworks between Goodell and Jerry. And I was at Jerry's Hall of Fame party last year in Canton, which gave me great access just to, you know, paint the picture of some scenes there. So I, I felt there was a lot there that I wanted to write about. I loved writing about the Cowboys when I, um, when I worked in Dallas. I've enjoyed writing about them since I've been back in New York and, and felt having been there. For eight years and real and overlapping with Jerry and Jimmy for about four months. I, I just felt like I've always had a really good handle on that franchise and could right. bring something to the table that nobody else had done. I mean, yours was just a, a different approach. Yeah, of course. Um, um, mine, you know, I talked to his kids a lot and about what he's like as a father and an owner and what's going to happen after he dies and who's going to run the team. And, um, Probably the, the chapter that hit home the hardest for me, Cowboys used to train in Thousand Oaks at Cal Lou, yep. which actually where the Rams are based now. And there was a dorm room that had Tony Dorsett, Ron Springs, Robert Newhouse, and, and Dennis Thurman. And these guys, it was like the nerve center of training camp. They were funny. They were popular. Players used to hang out in their suite all the time. And they used to break curfew together, except for Newhouse, because he was just trying to make the team at that point in his career. and. They were, they had envisioned growing old together and Newhouse died at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota waiting for a heart transplant. Uh, Springs died uh, not because of the kidney transplant surgery that he had, but because of a cosmetic surgery that was supposed to help him have better flexibility with his fingers after the diabetes. He died. He, it was a problem with the anesthesia. He went into a coma for three years and then died. Uh, Tony Dorsett is having horrible memory loss issues. Yeah. And then you have Dennis Thurman, who's fine. So I wrote this chapter. These guys right now should be on somebody's porch in Dallas with a beer in their hand telling Landry stories. And two of them are dead. Dorsett can't really remember all that stuff, although his long-term memory is better than his short-term memory. And and Thurman kind of lives between Los Angeles and Dallas. So um, I, I really – I call that chapter Teammates to the End. And, um, for anybody that followed the team during that period of time, it, it's kind of heartbreaking to read what's happened to these, you know, four fun loving guys. And, um, and uh, to a large extent, you know, the toll that, uh, football took on, on Dorsett's body, at least. Do you, does it, it's really interesting. Like I always say, um, or I've talked a lot about writing books and I always think, um, the tough part of marketing a book when you're writing about the past is nostalgia is always moving, you know, like, um, 
the era of nostalgia is always moving. Like, uh, I would say I would not write a Mickey Mantle book in 2018 because mm-hmm. most people are dead who are watching Mickey Mantle or at least, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. senior seniors. And I wonder when you write a book and you're talking about Everson Walls and Ron Springs and even Tony Dorsett, do you care? Are you, do you ever think about audience? Do you ever think, wow, I hope blah, 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 I need to, or is that, is it, is that bullshit? Is that not a wise way of thinking? No, I I, th- I think that's that's interesting, and um, I I do give that some thought. And when people were asking me, you know, which era of the Cowboys is this cover? It's it's mainly the Jerry era, and a lot of it is the post Jimmy era, also. But I felt there were certain things about the Landry era that I I really I, I really did want to address, and and that chapter that I just mentioned about the four teammates was something that I was thinking about for a long time after Newhouse passed away. And then we found out that Dorsett wasn't in great shape that, um, that, that I really, I, I wanted to find a, a mechanism to write that story, whether it was a magazine story or incorporating it as a chapter in a book. And, um, this book is, you know, it's, it's nine chapters, but they don't necessarily, one doesn't necessarily play off the other. It's just nine things that I felt were really important to write about the most important team, the most popular team in the world. And, you know, my introduction, a lot of it is how I sat with Tom Landry the morning after he was fired as he was packing up the boxes in his office. And I'm even yeah. back then in 1989, I was thinking I'm sitting on in on NFL history right now because this iconic coach just got bounced by a new owner who had never met and was packing up boxes like anybody would after they get fired. And it didn't matter that it was Tom Landry. He was still putting his stuff in these brown cartons and somebody was helping him carry out to his trunk. And it was very compelling. It was very compelling to sit there. Um, it was very compelling to write about then. And I found it that way even now. So uh, in, in a way, I, you know, I know that cowboy fans who are in their 20s, don't know much about those four teammates that I wrote about, but I, I felt it was important to tell them and educate them about those guys. I actually, it's very interesting. One of my, uh, one of my other favorite quotes is the cemeteries are filled with irreplaceable men, uh, by Charles de Gaulle. And I always thought that Tom Landry moment sums it up better than anything else. Him packing his boxes, yeah, the immortal Tom yeah. Landry. And before, before long, everyone's talking about Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones and, Tom Landry is still recognized and he's still famous, but he's, you know, buying his groceries at A&P just like everybody else. You know, it's just. Yeah. You know what I was going to say, Jeff, is that what I, listen, I really liked living in Dallas and I liked the people there. They were very friendly and, you know, very transient kind of city because there's so many corporations there and people coming from out of town and et cetera. But the native Texans that I met and the really huge cowboy fans that I met, um, were, were really genuine and I, I really enjoyed them. And, but the one thing I always felt was very hypocritical about cowboy fans was in 1988 when they went three and 13, the fans were begging on the radio shows for Tex Schramm to fire Landry. I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly what happened. I mean, they, they had the, the, the strike the year before. The fans loved the replacement team. They hated the regular team. They were upset when the strike ended because they wanted to replace some players to play the rest of the year. They come back the next year. They're three and 13. Everybody's screaming that Landry needs to be fired. So then Jerry Jones comes in in February of 89, just a couple months after the season's over and he buys a team and he, he hires 
Jimmy Johnson and claims that if they wouldn't let him fire Landry, then he wasn't buying the team. It was a condition of the sale. And Bum Bright, who was owning the team, hated Landry because he snubbed him at a, at a uh, cocktail party once and, he, and Bum never got over it. But he would never tell Shram to fire him. So Jerry comes in and, and fires and fires Tom. And then all of a sudden, Tom becomes a martyr. The right. same people who wanted him fired were the ones who were among the 100,000 that showed up in downtown Dallas for the hats off the Tom Landry parade. Right. And I've always contended that Tom getting fired was the best thing that ever happened to him because people tended to forget that his teams didn't win the last few years. And all they remember is this, you know, our Tom, our St. Landry got fired by a guy who lives on the wrong side of the Red River. And how can they do this to our Tom? And right. he lived the last 10 years of his life being a, you know, a public speaker and, and, and being embraced by the Cowboy fans, the same fans who want them to get fired. It's right. just the wrong That's guy fired funny. them. Well, Gary, listen, I seriously, I, uh, I love this stuff. I appreciate you doing this. I've enjoyed your work for a long, long, long time, obviously. And uh, yeah, thanks for doing this. This has been great. No, I really appreciate it. This is fun. Your questions are, it's just different. And I, I always enjoy, you know, stuff like that. So it was a lot of fun. I'm really glad that you asked me to do this with you. I want to thank today's guest, Gary Myers, for joining me on Two Writers Sling Yang. You can follow Gary on Twitter at GaryMyersNY and purchase his new book, How About Them Cowboys, wherever sex things are sold. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. And my new book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on Apple Music and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the sizzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.